So Mark 12, begin at verse 1. And he, Jesus, began to speak unto them by parables. A certain man planted a vineyard and set a hedge about it and digged a place for the wine fat and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And at the season he sent to the husbandmen a servant that he might receive from the husbandmen of the fruit of the vineyard. And they caught him and beat him and sent him away empty. And again he sent unto them another servant and at him they cast stones, and wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully handled. And again he sent another, and him they killed, and many others, beating some, and killing some. Having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also last unto them, saying, They will reverence my son. But those husbandmen said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. And they took him, and killed him, and cast him out of the vineyard. What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the husbandman, and will give the vineyard unto others. And have ye not read this scripture from the Old Testament? The stone which the builders rejected is become the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvellous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hold on him, but feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. And they left him and went their way. So. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. Oops. Here's the title today then, the most important part of that section, I believe, Christ our Cornerstone. If you weren't with us last week, we've been following Jesus as he makes visits uh, to Jerusalem, to the temple, and he had a run-in last time with the Sanhedrin. This was the religious elite, the religious leaders. Think today of, you know, the the bishops and the archbishops and the cardinals, you know, all the important people. <laughs> but in a very simple and effective way, Jesus managed to silence them when they questioned his authority. So today's conversation is a continuation of that. It's the same, it's the same conversation, the same people. So we have Jesus, we have his disciples, we have um, the Sanhedrin, religious leaders and an unknown number of bystanders it says that it says in the first verse that Jesus starts to speak in the language of the parable so not a real story but there to make a point and as was Jesus's custom he draws on things elements from his own culture to, to form these parables and this one's about a vineyard it's a common enough setup in his day landowners would rent out their land to farmers who used the land for grazing cattle planting vineyards uh, or less commonly growing fields of uh, crops 
So in this story, the owner sends representatives to the vineyard. In, in, in real life, what those representatives would do was, was collect uh, payment, rent if you like, in the form of a share of the produce. But of course the, uh, the landowner's representatives are treated harshly. And he tries again and again to give the tenant farmers the opportunity to do what's right. In a last-ditch attempt, the landowner sends his own son. Surely, he thinks, they'll show him respect. But this ends in disaster when the son is killed. Although there are elements in this parable that would be unlikely to happen in real life, there's one point that has its grounds in ancient law, which is that a tenant farmer could claim land that no one else uh, stood to inherit. They could, they could lay claim to it. So Jesus uses this in the story to show how the farmers decide to kill the son so they could have the vineyards themselves. Now, Bible students will, will read this parable and quite naturally begin to attempt to decipher it. I suspect most of you will have formed some conclusions about what the different parts of the story represent. So you may have recalled references in the Old Testament where the image of a vineyard is used to portray Israel. You may have recognised the representatives that were sent, that were treated so badly by the farmers, as being God's messengers, God's prophets in this case. And of course the, 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 the most important character in the parable is the son. And if you thought that the Son represented Jesus, of course you'd be right. God the Father sends prophets to his own people to, to demand they give glory that's due to him. And his, his ultimate act of mercy to that nation was sending his own Son, Jesus Christ. But, but Israel, God's chosen nation, killed its own Messiah. The whole thing reminds us of this long story you can read in the Bible of Israel's rebellion against God and then broadening, out, broadening this out a bit more uh, we could see it as a description of well, the whole of human history because man has is, is been in this continual struggle to just get rid of God, rid the world of God. You might see in this parable the tenant farmers they behave in this way as a challenge to the landowner. It's like they're daring him to enforce his legal claim over the land, and they don't think they'll—they don't think he'll do it. And the same attitude continues to this day. The people of this world, as I say, want to be rid of God, and whether they acknowledge it or not, the shaking of their fists in God's face is a challenge, daring him to stop them in their rebellion. It probably appears to many people that God has backed down in some way. They don't see destructions like we saw of Sodom and Gomorrah. Their own sin goes unpunished. They see people in the, around them or in the world who 
just put themselves before everyone else and don't care about the harm they cause to others and they see those people profiting greatly. They think that if God hasn't exacted vengeance by now, he never will. The tragedy of this mass stupidity is is beyond words. God has set his date for the judgment of this world and he will bring the hammer of his fury down on every individual who refuses to bow the knee to him. Jesus uses parables in different ways, doesn't he? Sometimes sometimes uh, they uh, they are a bit vague, they, they, they're obscure, they can only be understood if Jesus chooses to reveal the meaning to, to the people. This one was clearer, he intended it to be understood. And it tells us that the hearers knew he was referring to the religious elite. They're the tenant farmers, of course, in the story. It was their ancestors who persecuted God's prophets. And they themselves would go on to commit the greater, the greatest of crimes against God in killing his only begotten son. <clears throat> well, humanly speaking now, we could say Jesus was given these fellas uh, a chance to repent. When he asks them the question in verse 9, uh, what will the owner of the vineyard do to those killers? He invites them to consider that they are the culprits. They should have repented on the spot. But in a demonstration of spiritual blindness, the leaders here, who know the parable is about them, can only think of killing the person in front of them, thereby fulfilling the very prophecy they heard just 30 seconds ago. Such is the blindness. I meant to say, I meant to say there are there are other details in this story you may have been uh, tempted to to interpret in some way. So, for example, in verse one, there's a tower, remember, and a hedge and a wine. Um, was it like a, a a trench? Really, they used to a trench they used to make for the for the for the grapes. They really did stomp on the grapes and the, the, the wine juice or the wine fat would pour down these channels. Well, the thing about parables is when, when Jesus uses these, what we're always trying to achieve is to see um, what details in them are meant to symbolise things and we're meant to then ignore the, the other stuff. The other stuff's there just to provide a, a background, to, to fill out the picture, to make to make the story. So no matter how tempting it might be, I'm going to assume the details about the wine press, the tower and the hedge are not relevant. There are some Old Testament references which would lead you to think that those things have significance here. But I can, I can just tell you that they don't. <laughs> they, they, they don't. Not, not here. Uh, as, I, as I see it. So, so what do we, we... We have here Jesus laying out the climax of Israel's historic rejection of God. He tells them they're going to fulfil prophecy by killing the Son of God. And that is exactly what they did. And the main point of this parable is to show the justification for God's decision 
to replace national Israel. Now, if you, you hear Christians tell you that this is an error called, they, they will accuse you of, you know, replacement theology. just well-meaning folks they just want God to receive the glory they have a different viewpoint they've they've been sitting under different teaching all their lives and and so we we should politely reason with them when our text says the vineyards will be given to someone else that's in verse 9 this is not only a judgment on the religious leaders it's the whole race now I know I have said many times Jesus' strongest rebukes were aimed at the religious leaders. But the history of Israel shows a sad trend of rebellion that included the common people too. I can think of in Moses' day when it wasn't the leader, it was the people. So there was a replacement. God's favour would no longer be on one nation now become clear the all, all these eternal uh, blessings would be given not to the children of the flesh that is the the physical descendants of, of Abraham as such but to the children of promise as, as they're called God still has his elect people among the Jews but his dealings with them as a unit as a whole uh, have ended well we've said a few things about the parable but Jesus expands the story then by introducing a quote from the Psalms uh, at the end in verse uh, 10. In effect, he's saying that he is the son represented by the one the tenant farmers killed, and he is also the messianic stone spoken of in Psalm 118. And it's this last section I want us to focus on today. We're going to look at what it means for Jesus to be this cornerstone and we're also going to see a wider foundation uh, supporting a brand new temple of God a construction of a spiritual nature the church of God so then let's have a talk about this cornerstone Jesus Christ first of all so Psalm 118, which you can look at later if you wish, it talks about a stone that was rejected by builders, but it turned out to be the most important one in, in the building. I'm not entirely sure, I'm not 100% sure what the psalmist had in mind when he used this imagery, but as an example, there's, there's, one, there's one good possibility. Let's assume it refers to Let's say he was thinking of the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem after its destruction by the Babylonians in the uh, 6th century BC. Now, you might remember that Cyrus, the, the king, had given permission for the Jews to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the, the, the temple. And, by the way, if you are blessed <laughs> enough to live in, in, in Great Britain, we have a, have a great museum down in London, the, the British Museum, and it has lots of archaeological uh, artefacts that, that tie in with things in the Bible. And one of them is, is this um, 
this cylinder that was made by order of King Cyrus. And, and when, we, when we look at what it says on this cylinder inscribed in it is the very instructions that the Jews should be allowed to go back to Jerusalem and given support for the rebuilding of their temple. It's a remarkable thing in history. It's a remarkable thing to have that object just in front of you, uh, which I had the pleasure of doing when, when I visited the museum with the family a few years ago. So we can imagine there, picture it, the, the, the exiles are returning. Oops. The, the exiles are returning. My slides are going funny. The exiles are, are, are coming back to Jerusalem. And you can you can picture them that there's all these stones from the former temple lying around, and so they 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 examine them, and the, the psalmist is picturing for us that there's there's this one particular stone they they look at and they think that's in, not in very good condition. We don't want that one. It's it's no good. And so it was not good enough for the new temple, so they rejected it yet. In the new spiritual temple of God, it's a similarly rejected stone, Jesus, which was to become the most important one in the whole edifice. And this stone gets a mention even in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4 it says, This, that's this person, Jesus, is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Architectural language. As far as I know, none of you is an architect, and I'm not. So unless you've looked up this word cornerstone uh, previously, then it's unlikely you'll know what it means. Um, it, could, it could refer to one of two things. There was the main stone that formed the beginning of the foundation of, of, of a building, and and every other stone was laid from there with reference to that one. There's, there's another type of stone it, it could be referring to, which is uh, when they're building an arch, the stone that goes right at the top, and that sort of that finishes the arch off. That's called the capstone. So having said it could be one of those I think the, the first one's more likely because when we look at how Jesus is described in the scriptures it, it, it seems pretty clear the intention here is to portray Jesus as the foundation stone that's how he's described mostly anyway in the scriptures the foundation stone rather than a sort of finishing touch So, like I said, this cornerstone was the beginning of the construction. It was the most important. Every other stone laid had to fit around this cornerstone. Jesus Christ, then, is the cornerstone of the Church of God. He's not just another part of the foundation of the Church, but is the most important part of that foundation. Every other person who could be described as a founder of the church had to be like him. Uh, and, and the same applies to the rest of the building, us. He, Jesus Christ, is the reference point. How the church will be built down the centuries is determined by him. All the deeds that the Christian does in the name of God are carried out with reference to him. Our prayers to God are, are made in his name. 
our worship of God is only acceptable because of him, Jesus. And our evangelism even points to him. And even when we show kindness to the brethren, it's said that it's as if you've showed kindness to him. It's all about him. It's all about Jesus Christ. You could argue with me and say, well, brother, it's about God the Father and God the Holy Spirit too. Okay, well, that's that's fair. But within the Godhead, you see there's a satisfaction among them, uh, among the Godhead, sorry, uh, for Jesus to take centre stage. It was a Trinitarian choice to place Jesus Christ uh, in his role as the cornerstone of the worldwide church of God. And he couldn't become the cornerstone without doing the will of God. And so it was that he resisted all the temptation to do otherwise. And he made that march, that lonely walk to Calvary to fulfil what he said he would. If you're listening today and you think what happened to Jesus was a, was a terrible tragedy or, or a mistake, you know, it sort of ruined God's plans because of the nasty people. You're completely wrong. His offering up of himself was a deliberate act. He had a mission to accomplish. And you, you may or you may not be aware of this, but he, he was going to stand in the place of sinful men and women. All the Christians you know and all the others in this world who've ever lived and whoever will live were on Jesus' mind as he was hauled up in the air on that Roman cross. And in those few painful hours, he willingly took the blame for all the sinful stuff that all his people had committed. Do you see how God looked down on him as if he'd committed all the most abominable acts that man could ever commit? And being held as the guilty party, he had the wrath of God poured out on him. All those he died for will eventually come to God in prayer one day and ask for mercy. And when God when God considers the sins they've committed, which remember are fully deserving of an eternal hell, he will see all that person's sins have already been paid for. The sentence has already been carried out on Jesus. And so it is that a sinful man or woman can be set free and pronounced innocent of all sins forever okay here's my next point and it's about the foundation so we've, we've looked at the cornerstone of this building and now we're looking at the foundations the foundations being the apostles. So there's this other class that makes up the rest of the foundation of our building. They're, they're of lesser importance than the cornerstone, but as the foundation, they are still important. In our parable, we read about the servants of the landowner who were treated badly. Jesus is here has understood this as a reference to the uh, prophets. So let's see, let's read here what it says in Second Chronicles uh, about 
uh, something in Israel's history. It said, this is from Second Chronicles 36. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes and sending because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till, till there was no remedy. The parable t- today describes the treatment of the prophets very well. For the most part, they were they were either ignored. Uh, this is in real life. They were, they were either ignored, they were verbally abused, they were physically assaulted, some of them were killed. And they're not forgotten in the New Testament as recently as in the letter to the church in Ephesus. The prophets are described alongside the apostles as making up the foundation of the church. But later on, we see the church likened to a city with very, very large walls. So let's let's see what it mentions in Revelation about the church of God, the new Jerusalem as it's called. It says, And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. I mean, in one sense, the prophets should be regarded as part of the foundation of the New Testament church. They were urging people to repent. They were encouraging Israel to serve God with their whole hearts and with their whole minds, with their whole being. And it's that spirit of submission to God that puts a person in a state ready to accept Jesus Christ as saviour. And let's not forget that John the Baptist was a prophet, greater than all the others. And he directed people to Jesus Christ, the great cornerstone. But still, we we, we note the reference in in Revelation. It's it's emphasising the apostles. These were people who had some, some kind of personal encounter with Jesus before he ascended back to heaven. So they received uh, instruction from him. Um, most of them had um, the privilege of engaging in evangelistic missions with this Son of God. They were given miraculous gifts to use in validating Jesus Christ as the one. And for most of them, they were honoured with a personal friendship with Jesus experienced by no one else this side of glory. What it must have been like to be part of that team, to have Jesus in your midst as they did. (laughs) As the foundation of the church, they had to fit in with Christ, like I said before. They had to fit in with Christ, the cornerstone. They had to fit around him. They had to be sculpted to be like him but these were just men sinful men I wouldn't say they were more sinful than us but let's not forget that they had the privilege these uh, these the 12 disciples had the privilege of being with the incarnate Christ but when it came to it they all ran away and abandoned their friends their friend Jesus No, brethren, the the real reason they fitted perfectly around a cornerstone in the temple of God was not because they made themselves so through good 
behaviour. Their perfect shape and fitness as foundation stones was all in the perfection of Christ himself. Being in Christ made them the perfect fit to take their place in the holy temple of God, even if their behaviour didn't reflect that perfection. Well, there we have the um, the cornerstone we've mentioned. We've identified that as Jesus and the foundations made up of the apostles and perhaps also the prophets. And then, of course, we have the building itself made up of the multitude of God's elect people. Now, the, the vineyard, as I said earlier, was often used as a classic metaphor for Israel. Like uh, here in uh, Isaiah, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression for righteousness, but behold, cry. But Jesus came to show us the true Israel of God. In the past few weeks especially, we've seen him dropping hints, haven't we? We've seen him dropping hints lately um, to this effect that he's revealing the, the true Israel of God. God's grand plan was not to be based around a temple or Jerusalem. It was not going to involve animal sacrifices. It was not going to be about the Jews. This new spiritual temple of God that would last forever would be made up of members of the true Israel of God. They'd be part of a better, superior covenant with God. They'd trust in one sacrifice to end them all. They... They, they, they would be found in every part of the globe now. And each one would become a stone in the superb creation of God's everlasting temple. Listen to what it says in First Peter and chapter 2. You also, as lively stones, alive stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up sacrifices spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ let me make this point not all Jews have or will reject Jesus Christ so God has graciously graciously included some in his purposes God could have condemned the whole the whole race of the Jewish people to apostasy for all time. He had the right to do that after the way they had uh, treated them uh, and despised all the, the benefits and advantages they had. But the Apostle Paul tells us that God has not completely extinguished them. Some have, some have believed in Jesus and some will in the future believe in Jesus. So although this new temple of God will be made up almost entirely of Gentiles, some of the stones will be former Jews taking their place in the temple, which has Jewish believers at its very foundation. 
I thought it was interesting, you know, worth mentioning. Jesus, um, Peter calls us um, lively stones. And I said that meant, you know, just alive. Well, stones are dead, aren't they? We even describe things as being stone dead. So where does Peter get this idea the stones are alive? I think it's a great image, a great image of sinful man being made alive. We began, Remember, we, we began our lives spiritually dead, incapable of performing the smallest act that God would consider good, unable, therefore, to do the one thing that could deliver us from the judgment that was coming our way, and that's repentance and faith. But we remember the grace of God for some people, it said, where sin abounded, it says, grace did much more abound. God took these dead stones and gave them life. The, the architectural plans for this new Jerusalem were made before the world existed. The plan was to take some of the stones that make up the race of mankind and use them in this holy construction. Someone described this world as, I came across this uh, in my reading, uh, someone described this world as a quarry from which God cuts out stones and then he, he shapes them uh, for use in his new temple, the church. And this temple exceeds everything that went before it. it it's more, this this church of God, it's more beautiful than Solomon's temple. It's bigger than Herod's temple. It's more it's a more um, it's a project which exceeds even the breathtaking vision of a temple that we see in Ezekiel in his in Ezekiel's uh, vision I talked earlier about I talked earlier about the the perfection of the stones being due to their possession by Christ that is the in this in that this new uh, uh, temple of God's made up of perfect beings were, were forced to see that perfection coming from the righteousness of Christ that now belongs to every member of the church because as I say uh, a, a stone can't dig itself out the ground make itself alive and shape itself to perfection that, that can't happen so we, 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 we it directs us to see that the perfection is, is in Christ but we, we also know that in this life we're to so submit ourselves to God as to make our thoughts and our words and our actions Christ-like. And our theology shows us clearly that all the steps we take towards Christ-likeness in this life are begun and perfected by God himself. Even as a believer, you can't do a single good thing without without him. But God tells us to do stuff. He tells us to lean on him for the strength to do it. But he tells us to work, to witness, to fight and all these other things. There's a danger, I think, when people talk about holiness, that they could mean being made more fit for glory and I've heard people say that and as far as I can see that is an abominable thought because our acceptance is wholly through the merits of Jesus Christ and whether we do well in our Christian walk or not our acceptance with God 
doesn't change. But it's expected that our behaviour will change during our Christian lives. For example, we'll grow in knowledge of Jesus Christ. We'll come to know about his character more. We'll come to know about his, his purposes more. And we'll even get to know him more as a personal friend and a, and a brother. Now, although this is a very general rule and it takes into account the many exceptions, we all know there are exceptions to this, but there's a trend in the Christian life of improvement in words and actions. I mean, believers are more likely to be wiser when they're 60 than when they were 20, if they've been believers you know, most of their lives. They, they just they have more experience in encouragement and edification. And dare I say it, they're more aware of how sin makes inroads into their lives and, and so they're more on guard. Now let me be clear, all the seeds of all the despicable sins that have affected those saints in the past or have never yet affected them to this day, they're all lying in wait in the deep recesses of the, the people's souls. So let no one in the church think that they are immune from any type of sin if you become proud of your if you become proud of your immunity to to certain sins god might just give you enough rope to hang yourself he'll show you one way or another he'll show you how just how inclined you are by nature to fall into wickedness and he won't cast you off forever but he'll teach you a lesson you won't forget What a privilege it is for us who are believers to be daily sculpted to be more like Jesus Christ, our cornerstone. God pays no attention to all the stones, all these the stones in this world. It's the ones he loves he spends time on. Day by day he shapes us. And it's been said that sometimes it's a tough exercise as God chisels off unwanted characteristics of ours. It can be painful experience but we know that these painful experiences are ordained of God that are intended by God it, it's easy for me to say that stuff you know I'm not on a hospital bed dying of some terminal illness and but but when we when we say those things that sound like cliches you know like well trust God God's in all this God's in control they may be well-worn phrases that we use, but they're still just as true. Because when I say that all the hard things in life are, that we suffer are intended by God, that's just not some opinion. That's just not some, you know, um, bizarre interpretation of the scriptures. Bible students will know very well the word of God is full of assurances that God is not only sovereign, he not only rules all things, but he always has the good of his people in view. God's vineyard may have been at one time run by a gang of robbers. They didn't offer up to him what was his due. 
They despised his messengers. But God's kingdom now is populated by others. We are God's true Israel. The wicked farmers in the parable thought they could kill the the heir, the son, and, and and all would be theirs. But not only was God's son raised from the dead, but he's now brought in a multitude of others to become joint heirs with him in the vineyard of God. Joint heirs. It says here in Galatians, and if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You, my Christian friends, are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ himself. And as heirs, you and I are set to inherit all things, all that God has prepared for the eternal future belongs to us now. So it's my hope and prayer that through the encouragement from the scriptures today, you'll be moved to give God uh, in the week ahead the fruit of the vineyard that's rightly his. And by fruit I mean your thanksgiving, your praise, your obedience. And that you'd have a sober attitude to shaping your behaviour to conform to the great cornerstone that is Jesus Christ our Lord. Well now may the Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Amen. Well, folks, thank you for joining with me in this act of worship. And we trust and pray the word that God will do its business in your hearts and in my heart today and during this week. So uh, until next time, I I leave you um, with my thanks and my blessing in Jesus name.